We're coming to the, well, we're, we're at the end now of our faithfulness series, and uh, the final reflection will be on the faithful one, Jesus Christ. As Revelation 1.5 calls him, the faithful witness. But I thought I would, well, I'm going to read that in a moment. We'll come to it in a moment, but it's a unique moment in, in our time, isn't it, in history. Some of you here will remember the Queen's coronation. Uh, I don't. Uh, but uh, this is the time that I will remember the King's coronation. And what I'd like to do is do a, a comparison of King Charles and the, some elements of the service that we will see on Saturday and King Jesus. And the service, if it's done well and done properly, is all about Christ and his reign and his rule. And I was just blown away by the amount of comparisons, but you'll be very happy to know, as a good Baptist, I've got three. (laughs) Three points of comparison. And this will conclude our series on faithfulness. So before we come to Revelation 1 verse 5... A few centuries ago, the Puritans, and who, by the way, are not all bad, so don't ever think that, that that's the case, but the Puritans were famous for saying, Christ, not man, is king. <laughs> In our day, we get crowds outside shouting, not my king, not my king. It's always been there. So it's no surprise that this slogan is found on the tomb of Oliver Cromwell, Christ, not man, is king. So this is a very special time, especially if you're British, and I hope it is for those who are not British too, who are sharing our cultural life. Because it's a strange irony that kingship for the biblical people of Israel was never meant to happen. Because God was meant to be their king from the start. Not Saul and not David and not Solomon and all the others. But they went ahead and anointed Saul anyway. Why? So they could be like everybody else. (laughs) Just to blend in. So for good or ill, the history of the world is littered with kings and queens. Some good, most not. Psalm 2 speaks of this. We read that earlier. Psalm 110 also speaks to this ultimate kingship of Christ. That it is Jesus who is king over the kingdoms of men and women. Jesus, as we know. What does that really mean, though? Especially on the eve of a very interesting coronation. And for most of European history, at least, these kings and queens were crowned under the authority of King Jesus. That's why Europe is often referred to as Christian Europe, because Christ is the true King. So we're going to do some comparisons, but before we do, let's read Revelation 1.5, which talks about Christ as the faithful one. It says this, um, where shall I start? Well, let's go back into verse 4. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne 
and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. He bears witness to the truth. He is the truth. He's the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And by kings, it doesn't just mean, obviously, a monarch like Charles or Elizabeth. It means also presidents in republics as well. So here are some, here are some comparisons with the coronation for next Saturday. Number one is this. The king makes an oath and places his hand on the word of God. There's a capital H for his there. That's a mistake. That would be if it was referring to Jesus, but it's referring to Charles. I'm not deifying him. <laughs> uh, I promise. No, go back. Don't go back. Don't give the game away too soon. And what King Charles will say is, when he places his hand on the word of God, the things which I have here before promised... I will perform and keep, so help me God. Wow. Pray that he does. But this action and promise speaks of another action and promise and of a greater spiritual, spiritual reality because God the Father sends God the Son as the oath of the new covenant. Jesus is the oath. Jesus is the promise of God. And so that oath eventually becomes flesh, as it says in one John, uh, John 1, 14. So King Charles is invited to make an oath based on the word of God, but the word of God is the oath by which God's promises are fulfilled. And all his words are true. So the king makes an oath, but Jesus is the oath. And Jesus performs and keeps the oath. So Jesus would pray in John 17, that wonderful high priestly prayer of his. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, God, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I glorified you on earth by doing the thing that you were called to do. And this is exactly right for all of us. What has God called you to do? Go and do it, and you, and you will glorify God. So therefore, find out what God has called you to do, and do it with all your might. Do it with all your strength. Do it all to the glory of God. And then the king is presented with a Bible, and these words are offered as he's presented this is the most valuable thing that this world affords. Now, at a fundamentally material level, he's given a Bible which is probably leather, gold leaf, paper, ink, and so on. It has a relatively tiny economic value. But as the revealed Word of God, it is the most valuable thing. Because the spiritual reality is simply unfathomable when we consider the words of Amos. Think about this. 
750 years before Christ, when the prophet Amos says in Amos 8 verse 11, Behold, the days are coming when I will send a famine, not of bread or of water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Can you imagine living in a world without the Word of God? Can you imagine how much more tyrannical tyrants would be? And very often, most often, if not all the time, every time there's a tyrant strutting around the globe, it is often the church that is the restraining power behind that. Because God calls his people to be salt and light. Send a Christian to the Colosseum if you want to and kill one Christian and 20 more will pop out the ground. But imagine. So the king is given the most valuable thing that this world affords, right? Which is the word of God. Brothers and sisters, are you in the word of God yourselves? Are you in the word of God There's no way around it. No way at all. We don't want to be part of the generation that experiences that famine. We do not want to be part of a people or a nation or a culture that said, as it says in 1 Samuel 3 verse 1, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Can you imagine a place like that? Can you imagine what society would be like, like that, with the, with the word of the Lord that is rare. So the king is making an oath, but Jesus is the oath. He is given the word, but Jesus is the word. Number two, the king is anointed with oil. Now, it's very interesting. This oil is called chrism oil and comes from the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, and it's been specially prepared. Chrism oil is myrrh. Oh, where have I heard myrrh before? Not Ollie myrrhs, no. What did the wise men bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Yes. Then the king is anointed with this myrrh. But what does myrrh signify? Death and sacrifice. So King Charles is going to be anointed with this chrism oil, which is myrrh. So first on the cross, the next time we come across myrrh from the crib in the stable to the cross on a hill, Jesus says, I thirst. What do they say they mixed with the wine vinegar? Myrrh. That was to act most likely as a painkiller. But it was offered up to Jesus. Did Jesus take the sedative? No. Because he has to go down to the very bottom of the pain and the suffering for the sins of the world. He has to go down and down and down. So he doesn't take it in. He had to endure the full weight of sin. So myrrh does represent 
sacrifice and death. But Jesus, in refusing myrrh at the cross, became the sacrifice and entered into death for us. Jesus just didn't simply take the myrrh into his body. He said no to that, but he took sin and death into his body. And he exhausted sin and death. Which is why when we proclaim Christ raised from the dead, we proclaim a Christ who has gone down and down and down to the lowest, the most God-forsaken, so that he can be raised the most exalted. And so Jesus exhausts death of its power. Now the service of all earthly monarchs anointed with myrrh reveals this one vital truth. That their anointing is a sign and a symbol that they are under the pattern of Christ. If you're anointed with myrrh, with the mark of the cross, in the name of Jesus Christ... It speaks to something much, much bigger than yourself. So Philippians 2 verse 6 to 8 says, Though Jesus was in the form of God, this is the pattern of Christ, by the way. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. That's the pattern of Christ. This is what myrrh is speaking into. So King Jesus was given myrrh at his birth. He was offered it on the cross, and he was embalmed with it in the tomb. The pattern of Christ. And finally, number three. The king is crowned on the ancient throne. The crown that King Charles will wear is going to be worn for the first and last time. Of his reign, apparently. They wear it once at the coronation. I don't know if that's true, but the BBC website said it, so I have to take that as given. It's a very powerful moment that having been anointed with the oil of myrrh from the Mount of Olives, no less, in Jerusalem, the king is now crowned. So where Charles will be crowned in a church among the people... Jesus is crowned on a cross for the people. Where Charles' is, crown is encrusted with jewels and diamonds, a, a sign and symbol of wealth and power, King Jesus, his own crown is brimming not with jewels and diamonds, but thorns that pierce his head. And where Charles is sat upon the ancient throne, King Jesus is enthroned upon a cross with his crown. 1 Peter 2.24 says, 
because he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And just as the coronation of Charles will be broadcast all over the world, I'd be very interested to see what numbers are, but I'm, I'm guessing between four and five billion people will probably end up watching it. So just as the coronation will be broadcast, so Jesus was broadcast for all the world to see. Not in the same way, of course, there were no TV networks, but they did the thing they knew how to do. They nailed Jesus to the cross with a sign above his head. Pilate wrote an inscription, it says in John 19, and put it on the cross which read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and it was written in Latin, Aramaic, and Greek. In other words, so that everybody could read it. So that everybody could see this is their king. So let us pray, church, that the gospel of King Jesus is really seen in the coronation. That the truth of the claims of Jesus Christ can renew this nation again as we pray for revival. Revive us, O God, is the prayer, isn't it, of Habakkuk. Revive us, O God. Let us believe in faith that as the world is drawn to the coronation of King King Charles, so the world will be drawn to Jesus. And you have a part to play in this. I can hear you asking, how, Richard, do we have a part to play in this? Well, I remember one of, one of the best lines that Jesus said, John 12, 31 and 32. Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, said Jesus, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. So what's your role? To lift up Christ so that the world will see that Jesus is King. That's your job, church. Lift him up. Lift him up. God our Father, as Jesus was lifted up on the cross by sinful men, may we, his redeemed people, lift up the crucified Christ that the world may see and believe. All glory to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We worship you, Lord. Amen.